Love you, baby. Thank you. It's so great to, uh, she really does model that prayer. It's, uh, it's really not uh, something she does for church. It's part of her life. And uh, just to see what God is doing in the area of, of prayer and working in your life, working the life of our church, we, uh, we spent a couple of days in Vancouver the end of this week. And one of the things we got to do that was pretty amazing was to meet a couple, sit down to dinner, who actually are from Malaysia, and a lot of their ministry has been involved in uh, working with the underground church in China. And it was such a God moment for us, I believe, because we have talked in the past about recreating here for you and for us a model of what it would be like to be in the underground church in China. And, And I know it's not possible to replicate that here. But what would that feel like? What would that really experience? And then uh, trying to find a way that we actually could connect with an underground church in China and somehow live stream back and forth during that event. Um, having, uh, Having some people in our church who've been involved in smuggling Bibles into uh, North Korea and into China, it is, uh, is interesting to put all these pieces together. But as we sat there, we realized that here God had put some people in our life who are a resource. And one of the things that I, I just want to begin by telling this story and, and kind of segue into that is this, that they told a story of a, of a Chinese pastor who had been fairly successful, and that church had grown. It was what we would call a house church, but that's not any way indicative of its size. That's kind of the house church movement in China. And they were talking about, about this house church that had grown quite large for a house church, some 2,000 people. And it grew, grew to a point to where it got noticed, and then the government decided it was time to begin to take steps to, to break that up and to change that and dissolve that. And so much of what went on there was behind the scene and intimidating family members and, and tracking people and watching people, and that some 2,000 people, because of the difficulty and the persecution that went on there, uh, really kind of diminished down to about 300. This pastor went through some very difficult time of, of, and challenging time of trying to understand where was God in the middle of all of that. And he was trying his best, and he spent 40 days fasting, just water, for 40 days. It was during that time that God gave him a fresh vision fresh vision of how that church would operate, and it would operate more like a 7-Eleven, and there would be multiple churches and no central head, and there would be a way that, that it, would, it could flourish, and now it's flourishing to the point it's actually even larger than it was before. But I think the one thing that came out in that conversation was the, the opportunity that that pastor had to find offense with the government. You can only imagine what goes through your mind when you think about being in that situation and you feel offended, you feel hurt, you feel even betrayed by God. And as we talked about it over this weekend, we talked about how, how Satan sometimes uses different things in our life to get us off track, to get us moving in the wrong direction. Let me, let me make this statement. We hope to find in ourselves... What can be found in Christ alone? 
We really believe, this is part of the, the human fallen nature of man, that we believe within us there is everything we need, and yet it is nothing that we need when it comes to Christ. That we are deficit from day one. And even in Christ, we find ourselves deficit if we rely on our own strength and in our own power. So what the enemy does is he comes and he attacks your identity. He looks at you and he begins to convince you that you really aren't really worth anything or God doesn't value you enough. And the identity begins to fall under attack. We'll see that in the scripture we have today. And then we either feel extreme unworthiness or we, op- we move to the opposite side altogether, and what we do is we begin to find ourselves all right in everything, even to the point of perfection. And I know none of us believe we're perfection, but we become perfectionists, and we become critical, and we become superior to everyone else because, after all, we're different. And Lamott said perfection Perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor. Self-righteousness is the voice of the oppressor. That the real temptation in the garden is, was really the temptation to be God. It was not a temptation to fail. It was a temptation to succeed beyond what God had ascribed to us. And so Satan's words to Adam and Eve were those words that said, has God really said? God doesn't want you to be like him because if you're like him, then you will be equal to him or greater than him. Therefore, God is trying to keep you from that which is most important. The other extreme is the enemy wants to magnify your failure or your past guilt. And that's how he overrides temptation. After all, if you are a failure, does it really matter if you fail just a little bit more? And we often hear that phrase, well, after all, we're not perfect. No one's perfect, right? And that becomes almost the the mode in which we operate in. So what I really hope we'll do today is we'll begin to understand something about this enemy whom God calls cunning, crafty, and deceptive. And we'll be able to look in our own life and find our our unique bent and how the enemy gets in our life. Because it'll, it'll be different for every one of you. No two people here will experience the same kind of attack, the same kind of temptation, the same kind of challenges. But all of us in the end will end up in the same place. If we're not walking with God and seeking him, we'll end up in exactly the same place. So let's pray as we get ready to read the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, as we pray, we can only pray um, as you have showed us to pray. Father, in your name, in your authority, believing, God, that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves, but only you alone, God, are sufficient. And And Holy Spirit, we ask for a revealing, a revealing today of what it is in us that the enemy uses to distract us from you, to rob us of our God-given identity and to try to take up your identity or to take up judgment or perfectionism as our mode of living. Father, we are nothing apart from you and everything in you and with you. Father, you've told us there's a way that seems right unto man, but in the end it's the way of death. And so we are to trust in the Lord with all of our heart 
and lean not on our own understanding, that you might make our steps steady and right and moving in the right direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis in the third chapter, and we're going to, we're processing our way through the book of Genesis, have been since January, and we have made it thus far to chapter three, finally, after three months. We're not making great progress in terms of space, but we are making great progress in terms of insight into God's word. We've said earlier that the first 12 to 15 chapters of Genesis are the most critical chapters in the Word of God because they introduce us to every major doctrine in the Bible. And if we get off on these doctrines, then we get off the rest of the Bible. But it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? You'll notice that initially, what's he doing? He's he's trying to really question the validity and the authority of God. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Did he really say that? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Now it's interesting here because she's already off track. She's already adding to the word of God. She's already been, been somehow confused in her thinking, even though she hasn't fallen yet. Words began to become confusion in her mind. And all of a sudden, even though she's not sinned yet, the mind is affected. And the, and the, the attack on the mind begins to change words, and words become so critical in this communication process because she begins to think, yes, maybe God is not fair. He won't let me eat it, and he won't let me touch it. But God never said he, she couldn't touch it. And we see how the enemy works. He works in our mind to first bring confusion. You see, if, if he can capture your attention, he'll soon be controlling your action. So the mind becomes super critical when it comes to walking in the word of God and the faith of God. Because all it takes is just to get off a little bit. All it takes is to think just wrongly a little bit. And no one is exempt. Anyone who thinks they're exempt has really, really not come to grips with what the word of God says. And then the serpent said in verse 4 to the woman, you will not surely die. So now we see the serpent, Satan, attacking the word of God. In other words, he's saying, God didn't say that. You won't die. Do you really think you're going to die? And imagine what goes on in her mind. First of all, God said you would die in the day that you eat of it, but she'd never seen anyone die before. She didn't know what death was. And now now he comes along and says, you're not going to die. And that confirmed, well, I've never seen anyone die. I don't know what death is, therefore... You must be right. You won't die in the day that you eat of it. Verse 5, for God knows that the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What is God like? Have you ever thought about what God is like and what God does? Have you ever kind of dreamed of being God for a day? And in that that day that you dream of being God for a day, you're going to make every wrong right in the world. You're going to heal everybody on planet Earth that's sick. You're going to get revenge on everyone that needs to have revenge given to them. 
you're going to maybe bless even you with the things that you don't have, maybe happiness or riches or whatever you might be, but you would be God for a day. You see, the irony is we live that out every day of our life. We act as though we're God for a day. In judgment, we act as though we're God. In evaluating someone or prejudging someone, we act as though we're God for a day. In questioning the motives of someone, we act as though we're God for a day. You see, the temptation is, is, carries itself out, and that thread that the enemy brings through us is so insidious and so difficult to identify that we don't even know we're a part of what is going on in our world. And we're captured, and by the time we're captured by it, we're so confused and we're so right in our own mind that we can't see beyond that and see the truth of what God has to say. Knowing good from evil, yes, I know if I'm God, good from evil. I can evaluate very well. Is that good or is that evil? Is that bad or is that good? And so we become little gods walking around with that mindset. Verse 6, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. It seemed to have everything that she wanted. It looked good, it tasted good, and it felt good, and it made her feel important. What else do you want in life? You want to look good, you want to feel good, you want it to taste good, you want to have your appetite filled, and, and if you can do all that and be God, what wouldn't be tempting about that? And so she took the fruit and she ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and, and he ate. The interesting thing here is that he seems to be the silent partner in this whole episode. This whole dialogue is going on between the woman and the serpent, and Adam is standing there going, you know, I don't know what's happening here. He doesn't say anything, and before long she says, why don't you have some too? And she takes it, and, and then we see the, what's called the fall. The eyes of both of them were opened, and what that meant was they forfeited innocence. Is there anything more tragic than a little child who has innocence forfeited because of some, some perversion? some evil in their world. We see it all the time. We see it in the life of a child who somehow wanders their way into a television show or a website accidentally, and innocence is robbed. We see it robbed in a parent who, who thinks somehow that they can dominate their child and pervert that, that ex whole experience with that child, and, and, and innocence is robbed. We see it robbed in media when, when, whether it's music or whether it's film, where it robs that child and begins to put something in their mind that's just not proper for that age. In reality, it's not proper for any age, but even worse because innocence has been robbed altogether. And then there is that ongoing battle that that child will face throughout their lifetime of shame and disgrace because they had been robbed and didn't know why and couldn't explain it. So forfeited innocence, they knew that they were naked and they sowed fig leaves. It was a covering. It was self-righteousness. They somehow felt ashamed. They didn't know how to explain it, but they said, we must cover something up here. And so in self-righteousness, they made themselves coverings. It really was a false atonement. The easy way to remember what is atonement means, just remember it means at one meant with God. They wanted to be one with God, but they couldn't. And so what did they do? They, they said, we've got to find a way to, that God will be okay with us. And so maybe God will be okay with us if we just kind of 
do our own thing in trying to help God accept us and love us. I want to take you into, into a quote by A.W. Tozer. He's one of my favorite writers. He, he writes some pretty solid, uh, uh, strong, and deep stuff. So I want you to really pay attention. The words will be on the screen, but this quote is so powerful that it, it, it just bears us reading now. He says this, There is within the human heart a tough and fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always possess. It covets things with a deep and a fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. It may not even be, by the way, let me just parenthetically say, it may not even be that you want something that someone else has. It may be something as, as, as deep-rooted as my rights. It might be something as deep-rooted as I'm important, and I'm not being recognized as important. And that is what he's talking about here. Anything that you put my and you feel an offense, it is what he's talking about. He says the pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but they're constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of theology could do. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull out up one rootlet lest we die. After all, how would I do without that? Well, what would my life be without this? And I I could imagine a world without that feeling, that experience, that, that, that. It's mine, after all, is it not? They've grown down deep, and things have become necessary to us, a development never intended, never originally intended for us. God never intended us to have those kind of deep roots into things and personal pronouns like my and mine. That was never his heart. It was never what he wanted. It's amazing, the more you get, the more ways you find to protect what you have. Have you noticed that? We were walking down the streets of, of Vancouver, and I noticed some of, the, some of the shops in a very, very nice area, but they had bars, and some did not. And I thought, is this a crime area? And it is not. It's a very low, low crime area. Why, why bars on one and then next door no bars? Was, was it really more valuable in that building or the other building? Or was it really more of the mindset of the owner who out of fear of losing mine had to protect his? The reality might have been that the, that the building next door had more valuable things than that one. But the mindset was different. The release was different in our life. He goes on to say, God's gifts now take the place of God. God is no longer in first place. His gifts are in first place. The things that I love become my God. And I love those things, and I love those experiences, and I love this, this, and this, because after all, it's mine. It's mine. 
Years ago, I worked as a busboy in an officer's club on an Army base. It was a wonderful experience and so much just colorful experiences I could go on and tell you about, uh, like one experience where I poured a whole pot of coffee in the lap of a colonel. I was so scared, I got on my motorcycle and I drove home. I was afraid he would beat me up. But the other experience was I worked with a cook. He was a, he was a retired uh, a chef, a cook in the, in the Army. And every year he bought a brand-new car. Brand-new car. It didn't matter. Every January, brand-new car. It was the one thing that he really loved in life, just a brand-new car once a year. But once a year, he did exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing. I got to witness it on one of those years. He would take a hammer, and he would walk out to his brand-new car. I literally got to see him do this. And he would say, do you like my new car? And I said, it's beautiful. I just love it. it. I don't even remember what it was, but it was a beautiful car. And he took the hammer, and then he swung it with pretty good impact and banged into the fender of the car. And I'm looking in amazement, like, who would do this to a brand-new car? And in my mind, it was the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. And after he got done explaining it, it made sense. He said, first of all, I want to be the first one to put a dent in my new car. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good, you know, because you always fear the first dent, right? He said, but the second thing is, I don't want to fall in love with my car. You see, things that are bent and bruised and broken somehow the real value begins to be seen. Because there's a false value in things that aren't. Cars that are not dented and cars that are not refurbished and cars that are not quite straight, there's something real about them. Whereas cars that are too perfect like people, there's something too perfect about them. Jesus came to identify with all of those who are bent and broken and bruised. So we would understand one another and we would understand forgiveness and love and grace. Tozer says, God's gifts now take the place of God and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. Everything in your life gets uprooted because we substitute the gifts of God and we overly possess the things that really we shouldn't possess. A couple of things I want you to see as we study this today is, is ultimately this, this power, that this insight we need into this comes from the Word of God. So let me take you there for a moment. Paul Bilheimer, who, whose book we're studying in School of Ministry right now, wrote this. He said, there is no such thing as abstract evil. Evil doesn't just kind of float around the world. There's not a part of, uh, of a city that's evil. Evil always has an intelligent, self-conscious source. There is no evil that does not originate in personality. You see, Satan is evil. Demonic forces are evil. And what those forces are doing all the time is they're seeking somewhere to go, someone to control someone to influence in their life. And no one is exempt. If you think you're exempt, you've, you've, you really need to go back and read the Word of God. It is clear that no one is exempt. 
The first attack we find in the, in the word was on the word of God. And what, what Satan wanted to do was doubt the validity of the word of God. It's not really valid, is it? And then secondly, to, to, to defy the value of it. it. It's not valid, and if it is valid, it's not all valid, and, and maybe this is what's really important. I hear it in phrases from people like this. You know, I know the Bible says that, but. And then what we do is we find our way in the same position that the enemy wanted us to be and to say, let me just kind of devalue, devalue the word of God and invalidate the word of God so that it doesn't really have, have the sting in our heart that it needs to have. You know, the Bible's called a, a living, the living word a two-edged sword for a reason because it's, it pierces, it, it hurts sometimes, does it not? Don't you like it when it, it helps you self-correct? It helps you, guide you, and it cuts away the things that are un, unimportant in your life? Let me show you what Jesus said about the word of God in Matthew 24. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. You think heaven and earth are stable, God says, no, those two pass away. God says, I will create new heavens and a new earth, but my words will never pass away. See, the word of God does not become invalid in heaven. It supersedes and overrides everything heaven and earth. We all look for security. We say, I just want security. There is none to be found apart from God, and anything you trust in apart from God is false security. It doesn't matter what it is. It's false security. Psalm 138 and verse 2, an interesting scripture. It says, you have magnified your word above your name. You think the word of God is, is powerful? It is, but listen to what it says. He says, how about the name of God? Well, the name of God, I lift up the name of God, and God says, guess what I do? I lift my word up above my name. Because if you don't understand my word, you can't ever understand my name or my character. How about Psalm 119 and verse 89? Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It's not it for debate. Satan might challenge it and we might challenge it, but God says, no, it's settled. I know what it is. It is what it is. Let me take you on this journey with Jesus for a moment. Imagine for 30 years, Jesus doesn't heal anybody. He doesn't cast out any demons. He doesn't work any miracles. He really, as far as we can tell, did nothing. And then he's baptized. And he gets the blessing of the Father. He blesses him not because he's done miracles. He blesses him because he's a son. And he goes through this baptism, and all of a sudden it says the Spirit came upon him like a dove. He heard this voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased and there's Jesus, all three members of the Trinity right there, all this wonderful thing happening, and you think, this is the start of a wonderful journey of ministry for Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what's the first thing God does? It says the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Doesn't seem proper, does it? Seems like the wrong choice on God's part. And yet God was going to do something in what we now typically know as the temptation of Jesus, we now know that it was so necessary for him to understand and to guide us. So let me just take you to that portion of Scripture. Matthew chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, it says this. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. How do I live? By the bread of the things that I trust in, in in this world? No, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
The devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, he challenged his identity just like Satan challenges yours and mine. If you are the son of God, if that's really who you are, throw yourself down for it is written. Now he's quoting scripture. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. What a temptation. You're not God. You're not a son of God. Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said, all these things will I give to you if you will fall down and just worship me. It's what Satan wants, you know. Oh, we would never probably do anything occultic. We would never worship him like that. What we do is we worship him in different ways. We worship him by giving him power. We worship him by giving him control. We worship him by allowing um, to be used by him to either do evil or speak evil, think evil. That's how we worship him. You see, it's different. We, it, 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 it's, I would never worship Satan, but you do every day that you violate and move in a direction away from him. We all do. That's why Jesus came, to give us the strength not to to give us power over that, not to fall prey to his. Remember, he's more cunning than you are. He's better at doing what he does than you are at doing what you do. Verse 10, then Jesus said unto him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now let me show you a parallel verse. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Exactly the same thing. He just applies it now to us in a different way. Do not love the world or the things in the world. You know what I love in the world? I love being right. Do you like being right? I like being right even when I know I'm wrong. Can you relate to that or is it just me? I like being right. He says don't love. Don't fall in love with that. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about things that are so thin in terms of the veneer of harm, but they grow into something better, bigger, I mean, and worse. So don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, when I love being right, the love of the Father is not in me the way it needs to be because that's self. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. Those things, those three dimensions are the same three dimensions of Jesus. They're not of the Father. And the world is passing away in the lust thereof, but he who does the will of God abides how long forever, he says. Let me give you a couple of things just to remember how to overcome. Number one is to know the word of God. Know the word of God. Know what God says and know, take it down. Don't, don't just surface it. Go down. Know your vulnerable areas. Every person in here has a vulnerable area. You say, well, I might, might be gossip. Well, yours might not be gossip at all. It might just be listening to it. You say, well, mine might be, you know, selfishness. Well, kind of dig down in and see what areas of selfishness, how they might go. And then be alert all the time. You can't ever let your guard down. Be alert all the time and be a warrior. 
You're in a battle. You're in a battle that's greater than the battle of Normandy. It is a spiritual battle, and what's at stake is the eternal soul of man. Protect what God has given you. Protect the inheritance you have in Christ. Protect your soul. That is your mind, your will, and your emotions. Protect it. Amy Carmichael is one of my favorite poets, and she, she uh, was the forerunner of Mother Teresa and, and wrote so many wonderful things. But she said this, Satan is so much more in earnest than we are. He buys up the opportunity while we are wondering how much it cost. You know what overcomers do? They overcome. Overcomers overcome. Francis uh, Frangipani said this, Satan will not continue to assault you if the circumstances he's designed to destroy you are now working to perfect you. Let me say that again. Satan will not continue to assault you if the circumstances he's designed to destroy you are now working to perfect you. In other words, when the thing that you feel like Satan is using to crush you, you thank God for. You thank God. Thank you for the character you bring into my life. God, thank you for the joy you bring into my life through this. Thank you, God, that you make me Christ-like. Satan says, what? What? I don't like that. I hate that in you. I hate it when you like that. When you rejoice in tribulation, what does Satan do? He hates that. You know, when you're tempted to just complain and gripe about life and the difficulties of life and you don't and you say, you, you may feel it, it may be real, it may just be the challenges of life, but you say, but I'm going to give God the glory because in all of this, God is sufficient. You crush the attack of the enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, but thanks God be to God who gives us the victory. God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Don't quit. If you get knocked down, stand up. If you get knocked down, stand up. Proverbs says, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked falls in the day of calamity, never to rise again. Another one from Billheimer. The final and ultimate outcome and goal of events from eternity to eternity, the finished product of all the ages is the spotless bride of Christ, that's you and me. United with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, seated with her heavenly bridegroom upon the throne of the universe, ruling and reigning with him over an ever-increasing and expanding kingdom. That's what God has for us. Don't get sidetracked in this life is the message. Some life applications. Here's the first one. Whatever the enemy has done in your life, reverse the work of the enemy. Praise him. Praise God. Thank God. If you need to turn from something, turn from something, or repent from something, or repent from something. If you need to change your thinking, change your thinking. Secondly, make a decision to stand against the enemy. You know, Ephesians 6 says you just have to stand. You don't have to even, you don't have to do anything right there. You just stand and let God give you the victory. And then time. Time is of the essence. Always decide today. Never decide tomorrow you're going to follow God, do right, uh, with God. Always say today, right now, right now is the time that I must act. I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now, and I'm going to, um, I want to ask you to do something, two things actually. I want you to, to really, as we stand and prepare our hearts for this time,
Um, just this final time where we just listen to God. The band will be here. They'll play uh, behind us. But I want to ask you to do two things. I want to ask you, what is it that God showed you during this talk, during this worship set, during this hour that we've had together? What has he showed you? Would you just say, God, I want to be obedient to do what you showed me to do? Remember, and if you're thinking it's about somebody else, then you miss the point. It's never about somebody else in moments like this. This is about you. Well, how's God talking to you? What needs to happen in you? What needs to change in you? When I, when I speak a message, it's always about me. What's about me? What, what, what about Phil? What about you? And if God moves you in a way, I'm just going to ask you to, to, to maybe come to this altar, and you may just want to stand here and pray, and our prayer team members will be here and pray. The second thing I want to ask you to do is uh, this week we're going to, we're preparing our community for what we're doing for Easter. And uh, this is one of the, the door hangers that we're going to be putting out, about 55,000 of these. And on the back is the steps to salvation. I can only imagine if, Imagine if 10% of the people who read this came to faith in Christ. You say, well, that's too many. Okay, how about one? How about 1%? Well, do you really think that'll happen? Okay, what if just one person? Would it be worth it? It would, wouldn't it? But I believe what's the power behind this is not what's in print. What's behind this is the Spirit of God. We've got a couple of boxes up here just to illustrate this for you. And I wonder if any of you would want to come and maybe gather around these boxes and and just pray God's anointing on these as they start to go out this week. That God would use these in someone's life to change their life, to bring them to this place or to bring them to faith in Christ. But as, uh, as we just listen, we're just going to let this be a time of invitation for you to move as God leads you to move. Would you just do that? Just come to the front. Just say, God, I just want to... I want to commit myself to you. I want to pray. I want to bless these hangers.